dive into our sermon now. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a red one nearby. Uh, use that one today. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to just give that to you. That's our gift to you. Uh, 1 Peter, if you're using the red Bible, is on page 588. We started a new series last week on uh, the pillars of Story Church. And uh, we're calling them pillars because these are the foundational uh, core values that everything we do as a church stands upon. They, they hold us up. And when we look at the Bible, we see that these are the things that uh, lift up everything that we do as a church. And you'll see them in the bulletin, out in the lobby, or on our website. And they're restful, rooted, and real. Last week, we looked at restful because the gospel offers us the deep rest that our souls have been longing for. This morning, we're looking at rooted. And next week, we will look at real. And by rooted... I mean simply this. To be rooted is to be uh, deeply established and firm and connected so that when uh, chaos comes, we aren't swayed. You know, like a tree that's got roots dug deep into the earth, the wind that we're all experiencing this morning in Cleveland does not sway the tree uprooted. We want to be a people, a community that is rooted. And there's a number of things we want to be rooted in. First of all, we want to be rooted in God's Word. We believe that this is God's inspired, infallible Word for us. It, it, it contains what we need to know about who He is, who we are in relationship to Him, and what He has done to bring us back to Himself and what that means for our lives now. So we want to be rooted in God's Word. But we also are rooted in the history of the church. You know, we are a new church, story church, but we are not saying anything new. We believe a faith that is ancient and is historical, and people have come before us and have paved the way, and we stand on their shoulders. So we want to be rooted in the history of God's people throughout the generations. But this morning, we're going to focus on a third element of being rooted, and that is being rooted in the communities that we live in. So whether you live in maybe Heights or Lindhurst or the surrounding communities, Wycliffe or Beechwood or wherever you call home, we believe that the gospel compels us to be rooted there. To get to know your neighbors, to put down roots, get established there, get to know your baristas, get to know your bartenders or your grocery clerks, get to know the city council or the mayor, the, the way that the city works. We want to be people who are rooted and care about the well-being of the community that we live in. We believe that the gospel compels us to do that. You know, Jesus says, uh, one of the last things he says before he returns to heaven, he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the church and, and teaching them everything that he taught us. That doesn't mean that everyone has to just pack up their bags and go across the world to places that don't yet have a gospel presence, although for some of us, maybe that is what God is asking us to do. But what he is also saying in that command is for us to recognize that even 
around us, there are people who are not yet disciples of Jesus. And he is calling us to take, to be rooted in this community for the sake of making disciples, of bringing people into the church, to teach them everything that he taught us. And so wherever you call home, that is our mission. That is what the gospel compels us to do. And what we're going to read in 1 Peter today is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who were not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in any of the major Christian hubs at the time, but just scattered across the land, asking that very question. What does it mean for me to be rooted where I am and make disciples of Jesus? So that's what we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read just verses 9 through 12. On page 589, Peter says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, this letter of encouragement that wherever we are, you have called us there to be ambassadors and to make disciples of Jesus. We ask for your spirit, you would enlighten our hearts and our minds, that we would, would serve you in faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning as we read this passage and talk about it, we're going to see three things. We're going to see what is the purpose of being rooted? What is the problem that comes when we try to be rooted? Or why is it hard? And then third, what is the promise that enables us to be rooted? So first, what is the purpose, then what is the problem, and then finally, what is the promise that enables us? First, what is the purpose? So I mentioned last week, and many of you helped out with this, that my family just recently moved. We just moved across town from one house to another, uh, but actually this marks the ninth time that Sarah and I, in our eight years of marriage, have moved nine times in eight years. It's ridiculous. And we've literally moved across the world and back. And without fault, every time we've moved, we've been asked the same question. Maybe you've been asked this question. Maybe you've asked this question of a new neighbor. And this is the question. What brought you here? Why are you here? Why did you move here? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why? Why have you moved to the place where you currently live? There's a lot of reasons people move. You know, a lot of people recently have been moving to the Cleveland area because it's affordable, it's close to jobs, you know, you're 15 minutes away from downtown from here, you're five minutes from the highway, and then you can get anywhere in Northeast Ohio practically. It's an affordable and accessible place to live in. Maybe you've moved here for your job. Other people move to the area for schools. They're raising kids, and they've realized, hey, 
the Mayfield School District is pretty good, or the Lindhurst School District is pretty good, or the school choice options that I've got out here are excellent. So we move for our kids. Maybe you just found an affordable place, and it made sense, and so you said, hey, I'm going to move here. It's, it's affordable, there's nice amenities. Maybe that's why you moved. You know, maybe some of you don't have a reason why you moved. You just found a place, and it made sense. There's a lot of reasons why we move to the places we've moved, but none of those are purposes. They're just reasons. Have you ever asked, for what purpose am I here? For what purpose did I move? That's a, it's a deeper question. Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered around the land wondering what does it mean to be rooted where I am to make disciples and it's right there making disciples Peter says that is the purpose for why you are where you are he actually says this twice in this passage he says in verse 9 Peter says that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and then in verse 12 Peter says that by our conduct amongst non-Christians, they will glorify God on the day of visitation or on the day of judgment. Peter is writing to a group of Christians saying, this is the purpose for which you live where you live. This is the purpose of living in the midst of non-Christians. That by your words and by your actions, non-Christians would come and know Jesus. That is the purpose for why you live where you live. Mayfield Heights alone is a city of roughly 19,000 neighbors. Now, if we added up all of the members and regular attenders of the churches that preach the gospel in Mayfield Heights, that's only about 500. And I know that not all 500 of those people live in Mayfield Heights, but for the sake of this illustration, let's assume they do. Now let's also assume that maybe another 500 live here but go to churches elsewhere. That still leaves, in just Mayfield Heights alone, roughly 18,000 neighbors who are not living their lives in such a way that glorifies God through a relationship with Jesus. Why are you here? Peter says you are here to make those neighbors disciples of Jesus. That is the purpose of being rooted where we are. These aren't just numbers, though. They're real people. They're our neighbors that you see every day. They're coworkers and friends that you pass by and call up or hang out with. They're baristas at Panera or Starbucks. They're the helpers at Giant Eagle or Aldi. And these are people who are currently living their lives apart from God. And the truth is, if, if, if they do not hear the saving message of Jesus that says God loves them, and yet they have rebelled against God and have separated themselves from his presence, but only through faith in his son Jesus and what he has done on the cross can they be reconciled to God. If they do not hear and believe that message, 
they will spend eternity apart from God. And I don't say that to bring a downer upon our mourning, but actually to encourage us. So that the next time you go to Aldi, you're not just going to Aldi. You are going as an ambassador of the king, and in some way, shape, or form, through your words and your actions, you are playing an active part in bringing neighbors to glory. Even in the mundane elements of your daily lives, rooted in this area, you play a part in something significant. And Peter is very clear. It is both our words and our actions that do this. It, it, we can't just go to people and say, God loves you, but you don't love him. Repent and trust in Jesus and your life will be good. We can't just say that, or we can't just say the gospel without a life that is filled with joy and hope and satisfaction in who Jesus is, filled with, with love and patience and gentleness and kindness that can only come through the Spirit. Because if we are not behaving in that way through the Spirit, our words are not attractive on their own. But when we as a community show people around us what a life in relationship with Jesus looks like, man, that is attractive and people will come and say, I want what they have. And so we can't just speak, we have to show it with our actions. But we can't just show it with our actions either. I mean, it's great that we're going to go and serve food at the food pantry. It's great when you go to a neighbor's house and say, hey, how can I help you right now? It's great when we show and demonstrate sacrificial living and loving. But if we are only doing that and never inviting people to trust in Jesus, we are leaving them without hope. Peter is very clear. We need to both speak the gospel and live out the gospel. That is the purpose for why we want to be rooted here, to make disciples of Jesus. Now, if that's the purpose, why isn't it happening? Because it's hard, right? There is a problem, there is a difficulty to doing this. And, and one difficulty, one hardship, one problem that I see, and what Peter identifies here is that when we look around, we realize we're not home. This isn't our home. We go up against a culture and a society and a people with whom we do not have top allegiance with. Peter actually says this in, uh, where is it? He calls us sojourners and exiles. He calls us resident aliens and foreigners living in a foreign land. Peter isn't the only one in the New Testament that calls Christians this. And what they mean by this is we are citizens of another kingdom. We, we serve another king who has issued another law and has, is writing another story that this world does not understand. It is hard to be rooted because when we look around, we realize we're not home, at least as it is now. Have you ever lived in another part of the world? 
or, or visited for a significant amount of time, even if it was English-speaking, just another country, it's hard. And there are cultural norms that don't make sense. There are foods that you might not have ever tried before. There's ways of dressing that might seem strange. There's a lot of reasons why going to a foreign country is uncomfortable and difficult and hard. You realize you're not home. My, my wife and I spent a significant amount of time living in India. And while we were there, there were a lot of things that were different about living there than living here. You know, one such example is um, in America, we have uh, this sense of like, this is my water bottle and not your water bottle. Uh, and it'd be very rude if you just went up to someone and took their water bottle and started drinking out of it, right? Well, in India, there's no such thing as like an individual water bottle. They're all communal. They're big jugs. And if you bring a water to a friend's house to hang out, and that's everyone else's water too. Now they don't put their lips on the opening, they do this like waterfall thing, and it's pretty cool, but that was something that like took a long time for me to figure out. It made me uncomfortable. Well, that's a small example, but here's, here's a bigger example, something that made me realize that I wasn't home in India. We were on a team of about eight other recent college graduates from the US, and we were all white, and we were in a city of over 20 million Indians. So we stood out. And wherever we went, we stood out. People would stare at us. Like we'd sit down at a restaurant and like the tables around us would just look at us and be like, what are they doing? Why are they here? What, who are they? They would just stare at us. Or if we were riding on the bus, people along the street would just like, they'd follow us. Or riding on the train, we'd sit down and then someone would sit down and for like 40 minutes, they would just stare at you. It, they were curious, why was I there? But for me, it made me realize, I, man, I, I, they were so welcoming and, and hospitable, but I never felt like I was really a part of it. I always felt like, this isn't my home. I think for Christians, interacting with a post-Christian and in many ways, anti-Christian culture. This it's only going to increase, and that's okay. You know, this is not the first time that God's people have dealt with opposition from society and culture, but it is difficult. Take take this for example. Just the fact that if you read through this, concern for the poor, be absolutely pro-life, and hold to a sexual ethic that the rest of the society absolutely hates. That is what the Bible's worldview says. And go searching. There is no other group, community, movement, association that says, hey, you have to, you have to believe all four. But that's not just the problem. The problem is how we have responded to that. When I look at the Christian world today, especially in the West, I see that Christians are responding to that difficulty in two ways. The first way is that Christians look at non-Christians and say, man, if I hold on to these convictions and beliefs, I will be rejected. 
rejected and hated. And so I'm going to assimilate. Or I'm going to adopt their practices, their behaviors. I'm going to look just like them. This is the first pitfall. You assimilate to the surrounding communities. You say, I don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak. I don't want to be seen as someone who, who hates everything. And so I'm going to behave and look like everyone else. And so you laugh at the same inappropriate jokes that your coworkers say. You start drinking and partying, partying in the same way that your roommates and friends party and drink. You, you date around in the same way that your peers are dating around. To an outside observer, other than going to church maybe on Sundays, your life looks absolutely similar to the rest of the world. That's one way people respond to this difficulty. But the other way is equally as bad. That's not to assimilate, but to isolate. To say, when I look at the world around me, it is wicked and dangerous and dark, and so I'm going to pull away. Me, me my, my spouse, my kids, we're going to pull away. These people, all of their friends are Christians. All of their activities are with the church. Everything they do is centered around this Christian bubble. And it's out of this desire to protect yourself from the wickedness around you. Because if I get too close, and that's a slippery slope, and I'm going to end up just like them. The gospel compels us to be rooted, but because it's difficult, because we live in a land that's not our home right now, we either assimilate too much like them or we isolate away from them. And here's why that's so bad. What does that say to non-Christians about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Look, if you're assimilating and looking just like non-Christians, all they see is it doesn't change a thing to become a follower of Jesus. It doesn't change anything at all. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel gives us hope and real change and lasting transformation. Jesus gives us a new heart. But if we isolate ourselves, what does that say? It says to the non-Christian that you don't care about them. That you've pulled away from them. That you've isolated yourself from them. That, that the movies and the TV shows and the music that they listen to and watch, like... They hear from you and see from you that what they're doing is so bad that you've pulled away from them. What they hear is that you don't love them. That is the problem that we face when we try to be rooted in this community. We either assimilate or isolate, and both of those hinder the spread of the gospel, and they hurt us when we try to make disciples of Jesus. But Peter even sees this, and he says in verses 11 and 12 that we ought to both abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He understands our tension, that we either want to get too close or pull so far away. He says, no, you need to be right there the third way, in the middle. Abstain from wickedness, but live amongst them. How do we do that? How is it possible? What is the promise that we need to hear that enables us to be able to live rooted in this community? In verse 9, right at the beginning of the passage, Peter reminds his readers of what is true about them 
as followers of Jesus. He tells them that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, Peter isn't trying to sort of boost their self-esteem and say, hey, it's not that bad, just look how good you are, look how much God loves you. He's not trying to make them feel better. He's using very specific language. He's using words and labels that he did not come up with himself. In fact, he is borrowing them from God. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus, after God has rescued his people out of Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them the law that will constitute them as a nation, as a people of God. And right before he gives them the law, God's voice comes down and says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people of my own possession. Peter is saying, remember who you are. You are God's people, whom he has redeemed out of slavery. He has rescued you from your sin and your captivity. And he is bringing you now to the promised land. Peter is reminding them that they belong to this greater, bigger story that God has been playing out for years with God's people. God has redeemed his people. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. He's destroyed the Egyptians. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's going to send them on to the Promised Land. And the reason why Peter is bringing this up here is because just like these disciples, the nation of Israel was given the charge to be rooted also. God gave the people of God, his people, the Israelites, the law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonies, the rituals, so that when they enter the Promised Land, that they would establish themselves there, that they would build roots down into the land, that they would live there and multiply so that their neighbors, the nations around them, would see them, would interact with them, would do business with them, would pass by them. And when they would look at them, they would see in the community of God's people a life that was alternative to their lives, a law that was just and merciful compared to their laws, a worship where you could come into the presence of God himself. The people of God in the Old Testament were called to be rooted because by being rooted, the nations around them would come and hear their words and see their deeds and would be invited to glorify God. Peter is reminding them of God's people's charge from generation to generation. But if you remember the story, it was not because Israel was a great nation that they were able to do this. It was not because they were more moral than all the other nations. It was not because they looked like all the other nations. The reason Israel was able to do this, to be rooted, to invite people to glorify God, wasn't because of anything they could do. It was because God promised to be with them. You remember, God went before them in the pillar of fire and of smoke. And when they got into the land, they built a, a tent and then a temple where God's presence itself came down and filled the area. 
It was because God promised to be with his people that they were able to be rooted and to bring other people to glorify God. That same promise that was given to the Israelites is given to us through Peter. Peter even says this. He says, once you were not my people, but now you are my people. And that is God's promise to say, I will always be with you. And because I am with you, wherever you're rooted, when you open your mouth and when you live your lives, you will proclaim the excellencies of what I have done. You will demonstrate the love that I have shown you. And people will come and follow Jesus. How do we know this promise is true? Well, Jesus says in the Great, in the great Commission, he says, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. We can take his word as truth. But more than that, we can have assurance that God goes with us wherever we are because Jesus, he came to us. And when he came to us, look, he, he associated with us, but he never assimilated to take on our sin. But he did associate with us. He came amongst us. He knew our pains. He knew our needs. He knew our name. And because he came amongst us, he lived a perfect and holy life. He fled from wickedness. Not by isolating himself, but by being righteous before the Father. Jesus is what Israel couldn't do, and he is what you and I are now called to do. We can only do it by faith in him. He's not just our example. But when we place our faith in him, he promises to be with us so that we can bring people to come glorify God. Friends, we as a church want to be rooted in Mayfield Heights and in Lindhurst and wherever it is that you call home, wherever it is that you associate with, we are called to be God's witnesses, to be rooted there, to care for our neighbors, to establish deep roots and connection with them. We can only do that when we place our faith in Jesus, who came to us. He associated with us. He died for us. He saved us. That's why we want to be rooted, because the gospel compels us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter of encouragement. 